Thank you, Bert. Thank you, Sally. Great job as always. A good morning again to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah, verse 1? Hey, Paul, could you turn it down just the monitor just a little bit? Sorry about that. I think everybody's quiet as a mouse when I'm opening my mouth. <laughs> all right, uh, we're going to uh, look at uh, verses 13 and 14 today, and uh, which is going to finish off the indictments that God lists against the kingdom of Edom which are basically the reasons why for the prophecy in verses 2 through 9 that he's going to destroy them. So, And then uh, starting next week, uh, we get into um, the, the final home stretch of the, of the book. It's only 21 verses long. The, verses 17 through 21 is all about the millennial reign. Which we'll, so we'll be talking a lot about the millennial reign when we get to those verses. And in verses 15 and 16, we'll be talking about the day of the Lord, not only in, in Obadiah's day with regards to the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Edom, but also uh, those day of the Lords in the past set the patent for the day of the Lord that's yet future, which we talked about uh, last, uh, touched upon last Sunday when we went over to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which asserts that uh, the rapture has to take place before the Antichrist can manifest himself and the day of the Lord can manifest itself. So we got a lot of cool things to uh, to uh, look forward to, um, and uh, just a um, I was just talking to uh, Bert before class as well, and uh, uh, on our weekday classes we're doing um, about this future coming attractions. Um, after we finish Obadiah, we'll be going back to the New Testament. I'm going to do Second and Third John probably in a row together, which are two little books, and uh, I'm knocking off these smaller books to give us a sense of accomplishment. And then uh, we'll go back to the Old Testament after we do 2nd and 3rd John. And we'll probably do like um, Habakkuk and Haggai or maybe in Zephaniah. And then we'll go back to the New Testament. And then we'll probably start breaking into these other uh, bigger books. Um, in the, uh, right now on Winston Bombers, I just started a new bu- book, Ephesians, which we'll be doing here eventually. But we're not going to do it uh, this year. Um, so uh, just to, uh, then also in our weekday classes, we're doing... Uh, study on bibliology, the study of the Bible right now on the doctrine of inspiration and then we'll be doing inerrancy and then followed by the history of the English Bible and then after that we're going to do justification, sanctification and salvation and then probably prayer and there's a series on the day of the Lord and there's a series on the church that I want to do with all of you so uh, we got a lot of cool things uh, preview of coming attractions and uh, as, and so I just wanted to keep you abreast of that. And also, uh, for those who uh, might not know this, I'd just like to announce it from time to time. Uh, all of our classes are recorded here. Paul records these classes, and the MP3s are put up on the Wenstrom.org site. So if you go to Wenstrom.org, you'll see it says, uh, listen to the classes at Doctrinal Bible Church, Huntsville, Alabama. And then there'll be links to, like, Obadiah, or, or what we've done in the past, like the Trinity, Canonicity, which we finished, Jude, and uh, right now what we're doing, Obadiah and Inspiration. So there'll be links to our Faith Life Sermons website. Uh, so you can listen to the audio. And also, if you go to iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, you can listen to the podcast. Uh, all these classes that are recorded here, uh, they go up to my podcast that went from Bible Ministries with iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music. So I think, like, I know Carl, when his, I was in his car with Carl going to uh, lunch with him one time, and he was listening to the Roman series I did back in uh, back in, in the first church plant in Iowa, which is kind of cool. So um, so they, so they're, um, those podcasts, if you search for Winston Bible Ministries, you'll see uh, all the podcasts. We get, like, over 2,500. So, uh, so I not only have the ones for Winston Bible Ministries up there, but also for... Uh, the Doctrinal Bible Church. Uh, so, uh, and also, I also, if you look at the address at the Webster.org site, there's the, where it says, talks about listening to classes at Doctrinal Bible Church, there's an, a street address to come here. So, 
Um, and also keep prepared. There's several, many people I've been talking to about uh, the church here. So, uh, you know, like anything, it's, it's God that's going to move people to come here. So, but uh, I know, like a lot of you, I'm, I put the word out where we are, where we're located, and uh, so we'll see what happens uh, uh, in God's timing. So, as uh, the Colonel used to say famously, and I always have never found anything in the Scripture to contradict that. Uh, God brings in the people. God brings in the people, and uh, you just get the gospel out, live the gospel out in your life, and God will bring in the people to you. So, and uh, I'm, I'm a perfect case in point of that, because he brought me to you. <laughs> yeah. You brought me to, uh, instead of uh, him, uh, you got, coming to me in Massachusetts, he brought me to you, which I'm eternally grateful, because uh, we had such a bad snowstorm here this morning, I just thought it was, just thought it was terrible. This year, I was telling uh, on Facebook, I was looking at, Facebook says, oh, you know, a year ago you had this happen, or what, or two years ago. So I just saw a thing I wrote about a year ago where I said, I'm retired, you know, Tom Brady came out with his retirement from football. I go, I come out with my retirement from shoveling snow. I just shoveled two feet of snow. Now I'm going to draw a hot bath and a glass of wine and just try to, you know, recoup after shoveling two feet of snow, which was not fun. And uh, so that was a year ago a little over a year ago, and here I am in Huntsville, and uh, I like the snowstorms here better, much better. <laughs> Thank God. This is God's country, let's face it. We all know that it is. Anyways, I'm not, I just try to tell everybody, you got to move down south, Huntsville, and uh, I've been to some cities throughout America, and uh, this is by far the coolest city. And uh, So anyways, probably because you're here. <laughs> all right, let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves. Uh, to see if we're in fellowship with God. First uh, John 1, 9 states, if we confess our sins to the Father, he God. The Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which he's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3, 16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. With that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your almighty word. We thank you, Father, for the completed canon of Scripture and the gift of the Holy Spirit to understand your word. We truly are blessed, Father. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of your union, our union with your Son, Jesus Christ, and identification with him and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand. We thank you for the wonderful future that we have uh, planned for us, uh, being in resurrection bodies and rewards for faithful service, the millennial reign, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. We thank you for the tremendous position in Christ that we have, that we're now seated at your right hand with your Son and uh, ruler of creation. We're going to reign with your Son for a thousand years and on into eternity. And we just thank you for the fact that you put us in the devil's world at this time so that we can proclaim the gospel to the non-Christian and to snatch more people out of the fire and uh, of eternal condemnation and also to uh, build up and each edify, edify each other through the obeying the commandment to love one another. And we just pray, Father, that by obeying that command, people will recognize the fact that we're disciples of your son, Jesus Christ. And I just uh, pray, Father, that uh, you would use this ministry mightis, mightily, and thank you for doing so as 
you're currently doing now, you're using it mightily. And I just pray, Father, that uh, you'll help us to rest in our position in Christ and be uh, patient as you work out the circumstances and uh, uh, your plan for this, uh, this ministry and us as individuals. I thank you for everyone that's here this morning, that are serious students of the Word of God and those who might be joining us through the podcasts and the websites at a, uh, at a later date. I just thank you for each and every person here assembled today to listen to your almighty word, that love your word, and want to see it uh, change their lives. I just thank you for the gift that you've given me, and I pray you would use me mightily here today by the power of the Spirit. Help me to bring forth your full counsel today to your people so that they can understand and make the proper application in their daily lives. Help them to concentrate and to, through the power of the Spirit, enjoy and rejoice over your word and the things that we'll be learning. I just pray, Father, that you would help your people that understand and apply and make applications so that they can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's in his name we pray for these things. And people, amen. You should be at Obadiah, verse 1. Obadiah, verse 1. In the first session, we'll be noting the sixth and seventh indictments against the nation of Edom. And in the, in the last one, the last session today, we'll be noting the, the, uh, the eighth and the ninth uh, indictments, which are uh, altogether, we have nine indictments in verses 10 through 14, which, as I said before, present the reason or the basis for the prophecy of judgment against the nation of Edom. Uh, quickly, by way of review, Edom, they were descendants of uh, Jacob, uh, Esau, excuse me, and Jacob was his twin brother. Jacob, his descendants, uh, he was the progenitor of the nation of Israel. And so, in the when the southern kingdom of Judah went out, uh, was de uh, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon in 586 BC, Edom joined Babylon and a coalition of nations and destroying the kingdom of Judah, which went into exile uh, for 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. God was not happy with the kingdom of, Ju of Edom because they were blood relatives with the, southern, the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. So God was uh, issued this prophecy. We noted that in the Old Testament, there's no nation anywhere in the Bible that has more prophecy spoken against it than the kingdom of Edom. And this animosity, it's quite ironic as I brought out to you, uh, Esau and Jacob patched up their uh, little problem that they had because Jacob deceived uh, his blind father into giving the, the, uh, the, the blessing uh, to him rather than the oldest son, which was Esau. And so uh, Esau wanted to kill him, and so his mother, Rebekah, sent uh, Jacob off to Uncle Laban, where he spent about 20 years there uh, prospering, but he also learned uh, through Uncle Laban of to treat your neighbor as yourself, especially your brother. And so uh, he learned his lesson. But during that time, Esau was blessed as well with wives and children, just like Jacob. So Esau was not even concerned about uh, uh, Jacob anymore, and he was not had, didn't have any bitterness toward him because God had blessed him. And so Jacob uh, was a little had a little bit of trepidation in meeting Esau again. So they buried the hatchet. But unfortunately, according to the prophecy uh, we see in Genesis 25, this uh, animosity of the Edomites with the Israelites continued throughout history, culminating in the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. Remember, I say southern kingdom of Judah because there was a civil war after the death of King Solomon uh, because of King Solomon's unfaithfulness to the Lord and uh, uh, worshipping the gods of his foreign wives. Uh, he was in apostasy involved in syncretism. He actually died the sin of death. Most Christians don't even realize that. That's why God took away the uh, kingdom from his, his son to follow, Rehoboam. He didn't take it away from uh, Solomon because of his father, David. So Rehoboam gets the kingdom taken away from him. 
10 tribes went with him, dispersed from him, went away from him. Judah and Benjamin stuck with Rehoboam. And the other 10 tribes for what we call the northern kingdom of Israel. And so you see in scripture, like 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the, the, kingdom, the kings of Israel and the kingdom, kings of Judah. And so that, the reason why that is because there was a civil war and there was a split. Now, Rehoboam wanted to bring it back together again by uh, our might, uh, but uh, God sent the prophet in to, to him saying, no, this is what I want. So don't move against uh, is the northern kingdom, Israel. So in, the, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was uh, in great apostasy and God sent the, the nation of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, which were, they, they were the first great empire in the Mesopotamian regions of the world before Babylon. And so God used that evil nation to uh, discipline the northern kingdom. They were left, they were just, uh, deported from the land, but they never returned. Uh, then you had just left the southern kingdom of Judah. And, uh, and so they, went in, they were in great apostasy, except for a small remnant uh, led by guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jeremiah, of course, the great Jeremiah, the great prophet, and Ezekiel, another great prophet, and Obadiah. He was one of those guys who was a contemporary of those men. And so uh, we see that uh, a small remnant was in the, uh, the kingdom of Judah, but it was not enough to prevent God from destroying the nation. So in 605, 597, 586 B.C., God used Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, an evil pagan empire, to discipline the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, you might say, why did it take 605, 580, 597, and 586 B.C.? Why didn't he just wipe them out in 605 B.C.? Well, the reason why he is, this is, is that he would conquer this nation in the city of Jerusalem, and he would set up a puppet king. That's what Zedekiah was. And Zedekiah turned on him, and he went after Zedekiah and, and put out his eyes before he killing his sons, before his eyes. Then he put his eyes out and then deported him to Babylon. So they would set up puppet kings. It's what the, 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 uh, the, the like Persian Empire did, Rome did this. They had their puppet kings that they would set up. And uh, so uh, rulers that they, would, they could use, okay? And so we see that 605, Daniel goes out with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and other, some of the nobles. And, that, that, uh, and then you have a lot of the articles of the temple went to Babylon. Then in 597, Ezekiel gets taken away. And then 586 BC is when you had the final destruction, which is a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9.26, uh, where the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem would be destroyed. And uh, this is exactly uh, what took place, uh, we see there as well. So we get to 586 BC. We have 586 BC. We have uh, Babylon is now the, the, the superpower of the, of the world, and you have Judah is now deported and they're slaves to the Babylonians. So Obadiah is looking back retrospectively. He's looking back retrospectively at the situation. Okay, where's the justice for us? These people were evil. Edom was evil. Look what they did to us. Ezekiel mentions this. We'll see this today in Ezekiel 35 and 36. The cruel treatment of the Edomites toward the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was very they were very upset that justice needed to be taken care of because uh, they, they really were rubbing it in, they, the, the, what they did, this evil, these evil empires. So God would do something about it. He would, use, he would destroy those evil empires with another evil uh, empires, uh, just like he used Babylon in its coalition of nations, evil nations, to destroy the various uh, nations in the uh, Mediterranean region of the world, like the kingdom of Judah, 
he would use other evil nations like Medo-Persia to destroy Babylon. And so this is what actually took place in history. So God, they, they, the prophets of Israel and the, the faithful remnant of Israel, or Judah, we could say, were looking for retribution. They were looking for justice. And Obadiah gets this prophecy, so did Jeremiah, almost identical in Jeremiah 49, 7 through 23, and that uh, God is, exa- is that's exactly what God, God's going to do. He's going to uh, present, the, he's going to exercise the principle of lex telionis, the, the punishment fits the crime. Uh, that's what I, for and I, tooth for a tooth is all about. The same cruel treatment that Edom uh, exhibited toward the southern kingdom of Judah would be exhibited toward them by other evil nations. So this is the prophecy of this, uh, this prophecy of the judgment of Edom. However, what's great also about this book, it serves as a, this judgment of Edom serves as the patent for how God's going to treat the pagan nations of the world in our day and age and in the future after the rapture, the resurrection of the church. As we pointed out last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, the rapture has to take place in order for the Antichrist and the, and the 70th week of Daniel to take place. Uh, the Holy Spirit, who indwells each member of the church, is through the church restraining evil right now. Uh, he's the restrainer in 2 uh, Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7. And it's his power that is manifested through us when we appropriate God's word, which is alive and powerful and spirit-inspired. And so uh, we're going, we see that uh, once we're removed at the rapture and the spirit will be, uh, he's localized in a body of believers today, when the rapture takes place, that will not be the case. In fact, it'll be the first time in history that there'll be no believers on planet Earth once the church has been raptured. Of course, people read the Gospels and the, the Jews will get saved, the, the, the 144,000 of Revelation 7 and 14. So this is the, so this uh, Obadiah is teaching us something about how, how God judges the nations. So this, as I said before, is not only a warning to our country, but Russia, China, and all the nations of the earth, because God's bringing them all to judgment. And the only way to escape this judgment, we all know, is faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to avoid the wrath of God, not only as for individuals, but for nations. So let's look at, uh, with that introduction out of the way, let's look at uh, Obadiah verse 1, if you haven't turned there already. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We heard a message from the Lord, an envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night... Oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Of course they would. But how Esau, the nation of Edom, will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. They'll be betrayed by their allies, uh, just like they betrayed the southern kingdom of Judah. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. 
in that day, declares the Lord. Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Yes, he will, emphatically. You, your warriors, Teman, uh, that's a, uh, representing the nation of Edom again, because Teman was a city, a major city in Edom at that time. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence. Now, that's, that's the prophecy of their judgment. Now we got, in verses 10 through 14, we have the indictments. This is something God does in the Old Testament quite a bit. He gives the reasons why he's going to judge a nation, whether it's Babylon, he does this with Babylon, he does this with Edom, he does this with Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, he does it with all the nations in the Old, in the Old Testament. So he gives his reasons why he's going, to, he's going to execute judgment. Here's another thing quite interesting. Uh, you remember Jonah, book we're going to do in the future. Jonah, uh, that was a conditional prophecy. You see conditional prophecies in the Old Testament quite a bit. What do I mean by that? Well, if a nation repents, and God says this in Ezekiel, I was just reading this this morning in Ezekiel, Jeremiah 18, it's also in Ezekiel 18. If a nation repents, it's in Jonah. If a nation repents, okay, and turns from their sinful behavior through faith in the Lord, what happens is he relents. If we repent, he relents. It's a conditional prophecy that was given. He says, I will destroy Nineveh and Jonah. But the, this is why Jonah left for, for Spain, really, is what he went to, Tarshish. He didn't want to go to there because he knew that if these people repent, God would relent and not judge them. And he hated the Ninevites. And you got to understand the historical context with that. The Ninevites would be like telling a Jew to go, and, born in 1940s, World War II, to go and give the gospel, a, a Messianic Jew to go give the gospel to uh, a Nazi, people who were in Nazi Germany, the Nazis. Because the Ninevites were butchers. They were butchers like the Nazis were. So he was told to go there, and he was terrified that they would get, that's where he headed off to Spain. But God dealt with him, he came back, and he gave, he gave the announcement of judgment, and they repented, and just like he, he was afraid of, they uh, were saved. So if you repent, God will relent. That's a conditional prophecy that was given to the Ninevites. And you'll see this. So God, God, doesn't, take, God doesn't take joy in judging nations. You know, people make a, this thing about there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. As if the God of the Old Testament didn't show any grace. You obviously haven't read the Old Testament. <laughs> and a lot, and we, Bert and I were talking about this before. It's, a, it's an absolute travesty that church is not being taught the Old Testament. You know, before, as Bert pointed out, before the before you know Jesus' day, who was he quoting from? He was quoting the Old Testament. How could in the Old Testament, the, we we, we the, it's like a dimly lit room. You get the New Testament and uh, 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 revelation given to us. It's like lighting up that dimly lit room. We understand the Old Testament fully with the New Testament, and vice versa. So we see that uh, there is grace in the Old Testament. The Ninevites accepted, uh, ex experienced grace. How many times did God uh, send a prophet in to the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom of Judah to get them to repent of their sinful behavior and trust in him so that he wouldn't have to judge them? God, wait, look at, the, look at in, Gen uh, in Genesis 15. God told Abraham, you know, he says, I'm going to keep you, your, your descendants, in Egypt. Okay, was it 400 years? But until the, the iniquity of the Amorite is complete. In Genesis 15. So basically he waited 400 years before the Amorites repented. And they never did. Then he used the nation of Israel uh, to dispossess them and judge them. So don't tell me there's a God in the Old Testament who is Jesus Christ. It doesn't have, it's not a God of grace. The same grace and love that was in the New Testament is manifested in the Old Testament. 
but it's perfectly manifested through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now we have a complete picture of the love of God. Okay? So God would, get, would relent if these nations had repented, but they didn't. So verse 10 says, Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. That's a message not only for this, the, the Edomites and, this, and the uh, nations of the 6th century B.C., but the nations today. The nations today better beware. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. And then we get transported to the, the great future for the nation of Israel. Remember, this is what God does in the Old Testament. He pronounces judgment, but then he also announces the great prophecies for the future of the nation of Israel where God will have a remnant of believers and he will fulfill the great messianic prophecies uh, in the millennial uh, uh, kingdom through these individuals under their king, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the greatest of all Jews, and the greatest, uh, the great God man, the theanthropic person of history. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, it will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. And Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame, there will be a united kingdom. And Esau will be stubble, the Edomites, and they will, be set, they will set him on fire and destroy him. Edom will be resurrected as a nation, just like Israel was, after being uh, not a part of the community of nations for 2,000 years until 1948. Edom will resurface again. We know that from the book of Daniel, and Daniel 11.35, all the way to the end of that chapter, talks about Edom will be around during the days of the 70th week of Daniel. In fact, Isaiah 63 says that the Lord Jesus Christ will come out of Basra, which was down in Eden with blood on his garments. And he'll be slaughtering the Edomites. This would be today with the, the kingdom of jo Jordan. He's going to come out of there with blood on his garments and say, why is there blood on your garments? He says, because of, that's the blood of my enemies. And I was left alone to defeat, defeat my enemies. And that's all he needs. He doesn't need, he's omnipotent. He doesn't need any help. So that's what's going to happen to Edom. And he's talking about that there as well. There'll be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. And then it says in verse 19, people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev which was a, a stretch, an area of, uh, stretch uh, south of Israel into Egypt. And then it says in verse 21, the great passage, will deliverers, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Uh, I like the Net Bible's translation of verse 21, and that's quite interesting, this, this particular verse in the Hebrew. It says those who have been delivered will go up to Mount Zion in order to rule over Esau's mount, and the, then the Lord will reign as king. 
and this is what everything's going on in history today, right, as we speak, the Lord's, what is he doing? It says he sits at the right hand of the Father, making his son's enemies a footstool for his feet. All the nations, all what Putin's doing in Russia and China and all the nations of the earth and Korea and America and Europe, all these individuals, all these nations, they're all doing, they're all playing into the Lord's hands. God in his eternity past, in the divine decree, he sovereignly decided that the free will of men would coexist with the, the, uh, with the sovereign will of God. And so every decision that they ever make right up to this point in history, it was figured into his plan. And he sovereignly declared that those things would take place in time. And everything that's happening now is not an accident. Who know? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. They're talking about World War. I mean, seriously, World War, at some point, if somebody gets back to a corner like us, don't you think we're going to use nuclear weapons? Of course we would. So I don't think it's going to be a general war. I don't know. I'm speculating. He could wipe the whole thing down and it could be back to horse and buggy for all I know. But all that we have uh, mankind has accomplished uh, for the last thousand years would be gone. No, I don't think that's going to happen. Jesus Christ sits at the throne. This earth is not going to be destroyed by nuclear weapons. I'm not saying there couldn't be a war, but they might fight over, you know, Taiwan like they're fighting over Ukraine. But at the end of the day, this is Israel's back in the land. Okay, the, the Europe is a major power again. Uh, you, you could have, you could see the, the prophecies of the 70th week could be fill, fulfilled now. We have the technology to have the mark of the beast. All this is in play right now. Israel's back in the land after 2,000 years. The rapture has to be imminent. Then again, it could be another 100 years. It doesn't matter to me. I'm gonna, it shouldn't matter to you. I'm just going to continue to do God's will until he takes me home or my death, whichever comes first. Either way, I'm on the team that wins. I'm overwhelmingly going to conquer. We're going to reign with Christ. So let them do what the nations do what they want. My, my Savior sits at the throne. If he could save me from the wrath of God, he could save me from the wrath of these nations, these godless nations, and the things that they're doing in this country that are godless. So we're going to look at verse 13 here in the first session. Verse 13, if you could look at my translation. Verse 13, you should have never penetrated my people's gate during their disastrous period. You should also have never gloated during this misery, during his disastrous period. Specifically, you should never have plundered his wealth during his disastrous period. So as you can see from my translation and the NIV, a great translation, by the way, Obadiah verse 13 contains two more emphatic declarations of guilt which are in addition to the ones listed in verses 10 through 12, which we just read and studied in detail. Now, here in verse 13, we have three more emphatic prohibitions which form two more emphatic declarations of guilt directed at the kingdom of Edom. Why? Because of their sinful treatment of the people of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar defeated them. They serve as two more indictments against the people of Edom. Three, three emphatic declarations of guilt, but two indictments, because one develops on the, on the second. The third develops on the second. So the first condemns Edom, as we can see, for penetrating the gate of, God's, of the God of Israel's people during their disastrous period, when God was disciplining them. Through the prophet Obadiah, we can read, the Lord's asserting that Edom should have never penetrated his people's gate during this period of disaster for this nation. And this echoes the last indictment in verse 12. Then the Lord states in verse 13 that they should have never gloated during Judah's misery during this disastrous period. And that echoes the first emphatic declaration of guilt in verse 12. He then identifies specifically, Obadiah does, how they gloated over Judah. 
how they, they, he asserts that they should have never plundered his people's wealth during this disastrous period in their history when they were attacked by Babylon. In other words, Edom gloated by plundering the wealth of Judah. To gloat, what does it mean to gloat? The, to gloat refers to looking admiringly or amorously at something. And it means to observe or think about something with triumphant and often malicious satisfaction, gratification, or delight. Uh, we see this in sports all the time. Ali was the one who started doing this stuff. He'd gloat over the guy he'd beat up, or he'd knock out. You know, like uh, Cleveland Williams, when he, when he knocked him out, when he was going backwards with a jab. The guy was unbelievable fast. And he's, it just to make mad, is, you know, nobody could touch him back before they took his title away. And he's over, standing over the guy. It was bad enough you just kicked the living daylights out of him and he hit, got hit with punches he never saw. And he's, you know, you float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, hands can't, hands can't hit with your eyes can't see, right? So he goes, I used to love when he did the brute commercial too. I thought he was a funny guy. So he's down, he's over there and he's bloating over them. And all the old timers, the World War II guys that came out of World War II, said, we don't do that. They thought he was, but he was joking half the time. He was playing, he was playing Gorgeous George. That's where he got all that from. Gorgeous George, the professional wrestler. Well, the wrestler, we call him. They don't really, I thought, professional wrestling? Those are great athletes, I used to think. No, they're fake, it's fake, it's not real. It's like, really? Come on, it's like Chief J. Strongbow and those guys. But they, that's what the professional wrestlers do. Like uh, Rock, you know, The Rock comes in, he's a great professional wrestler, and he'd you know, he gloat over his opponents that he's defeated. Well, that's what the Edomites do it. Nations do this, oh, kings used to do this. Um, for, uh, they would put their, their, their feet on the necks of kings that they defeated before they slew the kings in the ancient world. They gloat over it. They'd rub it in, is what we call. So this is not, uh, you know, this is not tiddlywinks. This is like big time warfare in the ancient world with no holes bar, okay? So here, the Edomites observe the wealth they seized from the people of Judah with satisfaction, gratification, and delight. Now, as was the case with the indictments presented in verses 10 through 12, these indictments in verse 13 are, were the result again, of the sinful behavior of the Edomites during Judah's destruction by Babylon in 586 B.C. Now, as we pointed out, three, three invasions, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. Now, during each of these invasions, a portion of the population of Judah was deported to Babylon. And during the last invasion, the city of Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. In fact, 2 Chronicles 36 uh, records the destruction of Judah and the city of Jerusalem and its temple by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, is here is describing the actions of the people during that final invasion, which is recorded for us not only in 2 Chronicles 36, but you see it in other places as well. So in this period of Judah's destruction, you'll see in, in verses 1 through 14, the prepositional phrase in the, in the NIV, in, their day of, in the day of their disaster, in the day of their disaster. That's the day of the Lord for the southern kingdom of Judah. And God's telling them in this prophecy of Obadiah, this is going to happen to you. What you did to your blood relatives, I'm going to do for you. So therefore, Obadiah 10 through 14 is describing the day of the Lord in relation to the southern kingdom of Judah. What is the day of the Lord? It is the period in which, in, in this context, it's the Lord judging the kingdom of Judah for their idolatry and rebellion, which took place in the 6th century B.C. So we're going to do a series on the day of the Lord on Wednesday nights one of these days. Okay? What's interesting about the day of the Lord, there's a lot of day of the Lord prophecies like this one that have been fulfilled in history. 
okay? So it's not just, when people think of the day of the Lord, they're thinking about just the New Testament, like Paul, what he says in the day of the Lord, and 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians. Now, when he's talking about that day of the Lord is what we call the eschatological day of the Lord. Eschatology is the study of future things. Future to what? Future to the rapture. Well, actually, the rapture is the next prophetic event. That's eschatology, okay? So we see the day of the Lord, there's an eschatological day of the Lord, which is triggered by the rapture, is what Paul says, okay? And then you have the, the 70th week of Daniel, and the 70th week of Daniel is, uh, is the last seven years of the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It's the judgment, it's the discipline of the nation of Israel, the final seven years. It's yet future. It, it begins with Antichrist making a treaty with the nation of Israel. That's Daniel 9.27. And it ends with the second advent to Christ when he comes back with the church to deliver Israel from Antichrist, the tribulational armies, and uh, the, the false prophet and Satan and the fallen angels who will be cast out of heaven by Michael the elect angels during the middle of that period. So we're delivered from that. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. We're not destined for wrath, but for, for the completion of our salvation in a resurrection body. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Okay? And 1, 10. You could look at that as well. So we don't have to worry about that future time. All we need to worry about is living the spiritual life right now. Okay? And living the spiritual life and, 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 giving, and giving the gospel out when we have the opportunity, praying for the non Christian so that the more can be snatched out of the fire and won't have to not only face the wrath of the 70th week of Daniel, but also the flames of eternal condemnation. So the God of Israel employed Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah as well as other nations, Gentile nations, in the Mediterranean region of the world. Interesting. Uh, hold your place. Look at uh, Jeremiah 27. I really, this is a really cool passage. Look at, hold your place. Look at Jeremiah chapter 27. God used Nebuchadnezzar, and he called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And he was a wicked ruler. Wicked pagan ruler. This is before he got saved through Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at Daniel, uh, Jeremiah 27. One of the great men of the Old Testament, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 27. Verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 1. Remember, Jeremiah and Obadiah are contemporaries. In fact, Jeremiah 49 prophesies against Edom, and it sounds identical to Obadiah, which makes one thing clear, that they were contemporaries. These are some of the great men in history. Why? Because of what they had to go through. Okay? Of what they had to deal with. They didn't live in a time of prosperity in their nation. They lived in a time where they were deported and enslaved by a foreign power. Yeah, they were the, they're the giants. It's easy to praise God and serve God when things are going well. When you got six figures in the bank account and you got a nice big home and all, everybody's healthy. But can you praise God? I love the country music stars. When they praise God, I'll pray. it's good that they praise God. But let me see if your career goes down the tubes and then you lose your looks and you lose your voice and you lose your fans. And then let me see praise God then. Like Paul did. He praised God when he lost everything. Okay? Now you might not have to lose everything. Hopefully you don't lose everything. But if you do... He has an opportunity to praise God because anybody can do it when things are going well. Those guys are great like Jeremiah because they were just put through all kinds of things. In fact, God told Jeremiah, don't get married because I'm going to butcher the whole nation. I'm taking the whole nation out. I don't want you to have any kids. Imagine that God telling you, you're not going to get married. And that's what he told Jeremiah. 
But man, Jeremiah knew the Lord like no other in the Old Testament. Guys like Daniel, they knew the Lord because they saw the, gra- the grace and the power of God in their weakness, like Paul saw in 2 Corinthians 12. So don't, don't, be, don't be afraid of when you go through trials and tribulations. Just look at that as an opportunity and a privilege to glorify God. When I'm weak, I'm strong. If you lose your health, I'm weak, I'm strong. Got to keep telling yourself that. That's what the thorn in the flesh to Paul was teaching him. Humility to the things that he suffered so that he would stay humble and understand that his, 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 what, whoever he was was because of who he was in Christ. Jeremiah 27, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah early in the reign of Josiah's son, King Zedekiah of Judah. The Lord told me, make a yoke out of leather straps and wooden crossbars and put it on your neck. Imagine being told to do that. Pass the bill. I want you to take some, uh, make a yoke. I wouldn't even know how to do that. I'd have to go to Kirk or somebody like that. Make a yoke out of leather straps and wooden crossbars and put it on your neck. Then you're going to walk around Huntsville and tell everybody, give in to the, the Chinese and, the, and the, uh, the Russians. Oh, they'd shoot me right there on spot. I wouldn't even live. Past 10 minutes. Look at verse 3. Use it to send messages to the kings of Edom and Moab and Ammon, Tyre and Sidon. Send them through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, the king Zedekiah of Judah. Charge them to give their masters a message from me. Tell them, the Lord God of Israel, Jesus Christ, who rules over all, says to give your masters this message. I made the earth and the people and the animals on it by my mighty power and great strength, and I give it to whomever I see fit, the sovereign God. I have at this time placed all these nations of yours under the power of my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He's a pagan. That's right. He doesn't know he's serving the Lord by executing the judgment for the Lord. He's the Lord's instrument. And his Babylonian hordes are the instrument that God's going to use to judge and discipline not only his kingdom of Judah, but also the other nations of the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world that were living in opposition to him. Like the nations of the earth live in opposition to Jesus Christ today. I have made him, I have made him uh, to all the wild animals, he says, subject to him. Wow. Verse 7, all nations must serve him and his son and his grandson. And that was fulfilled in history. Until the time comes for his own nation to fall. That was at the hands of Medo Persia, that Daniel was predicted. Then many nations and great kings will turn and subjugate Babylon. But suppose a nation or a king, kingdom will not be subject to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Suppose it will not submit to the yoke of servitude to him. I, the Lord, affirm, the Lord affirm that I will punish that nation. I will use the king of Babylon to punish it with war, starvation, disease until I've destroyed it. So do not listen to your prophets or those who claim to predict the future of divination by dreams, by consulting the dead, or by practicing magic. They, kept, they keep telling you, you do not need to be subject to the king of Babylon. Do not listen to them because their prophecies are lies. Listening to them will only cause you to be taken far away from your native land. I will drive you out of your country and you will die in exile. Things will go better. For the nation that submits to the yoke of servitude to the king of Babylon and is subject to him. I will leave that nation in its native land. Its people can continue to farm it and live, live in it. I, the Lord, affirm it. So there's a conditional prophecy there, you can see. So go back now to Obadiah. I wanted to go take it that passage because the Lord chose Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked pagan ruler, and his wicked army. Those, they were butchers. Okay, butchers. And, you, and God used them to 
discipline and, and to judge evil nations of the world that day. So the God of Israel, he employed Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah, as well as the other Gentile nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. Now, as we noted in our study of Obadiah 12, the psalmist employs the God of Israel to remember Edom's cruel treatment of the people of Judah when they were destroyed by Babylon. Hold your place again. Uh, look at Psalm 137, please. Hold your place. Go to Psalm 137, and let's look at verse 7. All over the place, you see uh, the prophets of Israel through the ministry of the Holy Spirit speaking against Edom. So these guys were really un got under God's uh, skin. Why? Because you're talking about blood, uh, Edom, and their cruel treatment of the kingdom of Judah. They kept fighting God's people, and they should have known better. Your blood relatives, what are you doing? Stay out of his way. Stay out of Judah's way. But they didn't do it. They just obstinate people. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day of Jerusalem fell. They said, tear it down. Tear it down right to its very foundation. O daughter Babylon, soon to be devastated, how blessed will be the one who repays you for what you dished out to us. Love that translation. That's the net Bible. Uh, how blessed will be the one who grabs your babies and smashes them on a rock. That's what they used to do in the ancient world armies. Uh, go now to uh, Psalm uh, Ezekiel 35. And this time I'll read from my ESP. Look at Ezekiel 35 because we have another prophecy against Edom. In Ezekiel 35, we have the God of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel promising to destroy the Edomites for their sinful behavior toward the citizens of Judah during their day of disaster, just like Obadiah does. And in this passage, Mount Seir is a reference to the Edomites since they lived on this mountain. Look at, and then we have, we'll, I'll show you, we're going to go right to verse 30, chapter 36, right after we look at verse 35, which is not very long. Look at Ezekiel 35. Now remember, Ezekiel's in exile too. He's in Babylon in exile. He, he went out in the second invasion. So it says in Ezekiel 35, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Again, that's the, Edom, the Edomite nation. Prophesy against it and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, Mount Seir. And I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. Boy, that's terrifying. When God is the creator of heaven and earth, who has the power to cast you into hell forever, or to give you eternal life, is against you, look out. Look out. And this is the thing, make application. The nations and the people of the, these earth, this earth, Every, every person who is not of a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, God's against them. But at the same time, he's offering through the gospel a chance to repent and trust in his son and receive eternal life and stay out of eternal condemnation, not have to experience that. That's the love of God. But everybody's under the wrath of God until then. So then it says in verse 4, I will turn, talking of Edom, I will turn your towns into ruins and you will be desolate. And then you will know that I am the Lord. This has happened in history. Because you harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. Lex Teleonis, the punishment fits the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what that's about. Verse 7, I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste. 
and cut off from it all who come and go. I will fill your mountains with the slain. Those killed by the sword will fall on your hills and in your valleys and all your ravines. I will make you desolate forever. Your towns will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, these two nations and countries will be ours and we will take possession of them. Even though I, the Lord, was there, therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will treat you in accordance with the anger and jealousy you showed in your hatred of them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. You know, God manifests his power and, and his uh, justice and righteousness and his holiness by judgment. He, can man he glorifies himself whether blessing us with eternal life or judging us. Then you will know, verse 12, then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all the contemptible things you have said against the mountains of Israel. You said they have been laid waste and have been given over to us to devour. You boasted against me and spoke against me without restraint, and I heard it. You know what he's saying? God's saying, I'm identifying with my people that you just, I discipline, they're my kids. Like, for instance, here's a good example. Parents, you don't want somebody else to discipline your children. You don't let them have do that, right? I discipline my kid. You don't touch my kid. That's what God's saying here to them. You took it upon yourself to touch my kids? I discipline. I'm the one who's going to dish out discipline to them, not you. Who do you think you are? That's what God's saying to them. So he's saying, you don't touch my kids. I'm, you, you, you speak with you. He's identifying with his people that he disciplined. Listen to me. Application. You're God's child through faith in Jesus. You have eternal life. You're in union with Christ. Anybody who touches you or me, look out. Okay? Look out. So understand that. God, you're under God's protection. And if he disciplines you, he's always doing it out of love. Not because he's trying to, he's not like a, a he, do, he never disciplines in anger. He disciplines out of love us, his children. So then it goes on to say, in verse 14, this is what the sovereign Lord says, while the earth whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. Because you reject rejoice when the inheritance of Israel became desolate, this is how I will treat you. Sound just like Obadiah? Mm-hmm. You will be desolate, Mount Seir, you and all of Edom. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Stay there. Because in Ezekiel 36, 1 through 7, the God of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel asserts that he will destroy Edom for their sinful behavior towards Judah when they were destroyed by Babylon. It says in Ezekiel 36, 1, Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, Mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Excuse me, verse... Uh, I'm right there. This is what the sovereign Lord says, verse 2. The enemy said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Because they ravaged and crushed you from every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and the object of people's malicious talk and slander. Therefore, mountains of Israel, hear the, the sovereign Lord, hear his word. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, and to the desolate ruins and the desert towns that have been plundered and ridiculed by the rest of the nations around you. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In my burning zeal, I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. For with glee and with malice in their hearts, they made my land their own possession so that they might plunder its pasture land. Notice he says, my land, my possession. 
Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and the valleys, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. Therefore, this is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says, I swear with uplifted hand that the nations around you will suffer scorn. And who's one of those nations? Edom. Lastly, we also know that the God of Israel used the Babylonian Empire to discipline the kingdom of Judah and the inhabitants of her capital city of Jerusalem. He also used uh, Babylon to punish Edom, as well as many other nations in the Mediterranean region of the world in the 6th century BC. That's according to Jeremiah 27. Now, go back to Obadiah, verse 13, and we'll, we'll close the first session. Obadiah, verse 13. So it says in Obadiah 13, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. Now, these indictments presented in Obadiah 13 must be compared to the indictments in Obadiah verse 11, my translation on the board. Indeed, you were like one of them during that period of time when you stood aloof. During that period of time, strangers took his army captive. Consequently, foreigners penetrated his gates so that they cast lots for Jerusalem. So in this verse, we can see the God of Israel, through the prophet of Obadiah, accuses Edom of standing aloof while other Gentile nations took Judah's army captive and penetrated her gates and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. In verse 13, however, God is accusing Edom of penetrating Judah's gate and plundering her wealth. So there appears to be a contradiction. However, in verse 11, is describing the attack on Jerusalem while in verse 13, there's no mention of an attack on this city since it's not mentioned explicitly in this verse as it was in verse 11. Now, these indictments in verse 13 only accuse Edom of penetrating the gates of God's people and gloating over his people's misery by plundering his people's wealth. So these indictments indicate Edom plundered the wealth of Judah and not her capital city. So therefore, what more than likely took place is that the indictments in verse 13 are describing Edom's attacking various towns in the kingdom of Judah during Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Jerusalem. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's first and foremost thing was to take out Jerusalem. Well, while he's doing that, Judah's attacking these other cities in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem fell in the first month of 586 BC after a two-year siege, amazingly. So, therefore, it's not likely, or it's unlikely, that during the siege of 588 to 586 BC, when Babylonian troops were concentrating their attack on Jerusalem, Edomite troops looted unprotected cities and towns in the kingdom of Judah. Now the indictments presented in verse 11 are the reason for the God of Israel declaring in Obadiah 5 and 6 that he would judge Edom by having her wealth plundered by other nations. My translation of those uh, verses on the board, if thieves came to you, if robbers came during the night, would they not want to steal only their sufficiency? If crop harvesters came to you, would they not want to leave gleanings? Oh, how you will be certainly destroyed. Oh, how the descendants of Esau will certainly be plundered. Their hidden valuables will certainly be ransacked. So notice, notice in verse 13 that God describes Judah as my people, which expresses his covenant relationship that he had with the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. That's why he calls them my people. So these four unconditional covenants, they guarantee that despite Judah's destruction at the hands of Babylon and other nations like Edom, the nation of Israel will always exist through a remnant. This guarantee that a remnant of the descendants of Jacob would always exist and be protected by God 
is found in the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. Unconditional promises guarantee the existence of the nation of Israel forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people and bringing glory to you and your son. In his name we pray. Amen.